Hello and welcome to NewsHour. Live from the BBC World Service in London, I'm Tim Franks. Our top story this hour is the turmoil around the White House over allegations that the President may have tried to get the former FBI Director James Comey to drop an investigation into links with Russia. Just before we came on air, the Chairman of the House Oversight Committee announced that he has invited Mr Comey to testify before members of his committee a week today. Also on the programme, campaigning for Iran's presidential election has just ended. This election is really going to be about voter turnout and both sides are doing just about everything they can in order to ensure that their constituencies come out in support of the vote. And Chelsea Manning has been released from prison today. She was behind one of the biggest intelligence leaks in US history. We'll be looking at her legacy in 30 minutes. It's unseasonably hot right now in Washington, D.C., the sun blazing down on the Capitol. It feels appropriate as the temperature rises inside the White House and on Capitol Hill. The question being asked ever more loudly could barely be more serious. Did the president obstruct justice? Or is Mr Trump, as you'll hear him argue in a moment, being held to a different and unfair standard? Overnight, the US media began reporting that the president had asked James Comey, the FBI director he was subsequently to fire, to drop an inquiry into links between his former national security adviser Michael Flynn and Moscow. The request was, according to those reports, contained in notes that Mr Comey had written just after meeting the president. The White House denies the account. Opposition Democratic members of Congress are professing themselves amazed and indignant. They formally demanded the establishment of an independent commission to investigate links between President Trump, his circle and Russia. This was Representative Adam Schiff, the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee. I think it underscores not only the seriousness of of why this investigation has to go forward, but why we have to ensure that it is fully independent, both in terms of our oversight responsibility, but also in terms of if there were laws that were violated, that we have an independent voice and decision maker at the Justice Department uh, making those decisions. To which the Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives, Paul Ryan, had this message. Let's all just slow down a bit. It is obvious there, there are some people out there who want to harm the president, but we have an obligation to carry out our oversight regardless of which party is in the White House. And that means before rushing to judgment, we get all the pertinent information. Uh, the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee has appropriately requested this memo, uh, and I'm sure we're going to want to hear from Mr. Comey about why, if this happens as he allegedly describes, why didn't take action at the time. Well, uh, Paul Ryan calling for calm. Uh, President Trump, for his part, doesn't generally do understatement. And today, at a speech welcoming new members of the US Coast Guard at their academy in Connecticut, he had this observation. No politician in history, and I say this with great surety, has been treated worse or more unfairly. You can't let them get you down. You can't let the critics and the naysayers get in the way of your dreams. So what of those who have served as legal advisers in previous Republican administrations? David Rifkin was appointed to the Department of Justice during the Reagan and uh, first Bush, George Bush, White House. Speaking to NewsHour, Mr Rifkin said that the president had a perfect right to inquire about the investigation into his former national security advisor. It's entirely legal for the president to tell then FBI director Comey, look, Mr. Flynn is a patriot. He served his country well. You know, be careful how you proceed. 
consider all the equities. And I think at worst, this is what happened here, because it could not have been anything more dramatic. The notion that he actually told the FBI director to seize the investigation is quite implausible, because if that was that level of a blunt command, I have no doubt that Comey would have resigned at the time, or at least threatened to resign, it would have leaked. The view of uh, David Rifkin, Richard Painter was the chief White House ethics lawyer in the George W. Bush administration. What does he make of the most recent reports? This is uh, yet one more development that strongly suggests an effort by the president and others in the White House to derail the investigation of uh, General Flynn and General Flynn's contacts with the Russians and more broadly the investigation of Russian interference in the American election and Russian espionage inside the United States. So it's a very serious situation uh, for the United States right now uh, that our president apparently is trying to prevent an FBI investigation. It is a very, very troubling situation. The counter-argument to all that is that under the US system, I fear I barely need to tell you this, but under the US system, the chief executive can direct other members of the executive and the FBI director is another member of the executive and if the voters don't like it, well, they'll kick him out next time round at the next elections but it's up to him to give guidance to his subordinates. That's absolutely right. The president has the power to fire the FBI director but there's such a thing as abuse of power and if the power to tell the FBI director what to do is used to interfere with a criminal investigation that is obstruction of justice. So we are certainly not debating whether the president has the power to do these things, but he also is accountable not only to the voters, but to the Congress under the Constitution, and he can be impeached and removed. How long have you been involved with the Republican Party or identified yourself as a, as a Republican? Since at least 1987. Well, 30 years. Yes. I just wonder, in that case, what you would expect now of the Republican members of Congress. What should they be doing? They should do their job and investigate what has happened here and uh, uh, take the necessary steps. And that means uh, investigations of the House and Senate Judiciary Committee into obstruction of justice by the president or anyone else, and also investigations of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees about the Russian espionage inside the United States and then furthermore, appointment of an independent prosecutor in the Justice Department to prosecute any and all crimes. Uh, these are things which we can easily do. I want to emphasize the Republican Party survived the Watergate crisis and came back very strong with the election of Ronald Reagan only six uh, years later in 1980. The Republicans, if they do the right thing, can remain a strong and viable political party in the United States. Do you see any sign that Republican senators and congressmen and women are willing to take those steps? Yes. Uh, Senator McCain of Arizona, who was the Republican nominee for president in 2008, has uh, made clear his concerns that this is escalating in a manner similar to the Watergate crisis. He's an isolated figure, though, isn't he? uh, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina has expressed grave concerns about the Russian interference in our election I do not think there's going to be much tolerance uh, among leading Republicans uh, for Russian espionage inside the United States or 
persons receiving money from the Russian government not disclosing it. What do you think about the issue of impeachment? Do you think that it is viable, desirable, possible? I think it's absolutely critical to have hearings and find out the facts first and then have recommendations be made. The House and the Senate should not politicize this. This is a matter of national security. Impeachment of a president is a very uh, serious step to take. It is sometimes necessary. But if it appears to be political or over trivial matters, it can cause great disturbance in the government. We uh, only should resort to impeachment uh, and the recommendation of impeachment in the most serious of circumstances. But these circumstances are sufficiently serious that the investigation does need to start. Richard Painter, the chief White House ethics lawyer in uh, the second George Bush administration, George W. Bush. We have been trying all day to get a Republican from the House of Representatives or the Senate uh, to talk to us. One did agree uh, to speak, but uh, unfortunately, just before we came on air, pulled out for what we were told was were scheduling reasons. Uh, no such excuse for the BBC's Anthony Zerker in Washington, D.C. How far does he think concern is rising among Republicans in Congress? Concern is indeed growing. I I characterize the Republicans as walking a tightrope right now. When you're walking a tightrope, you don't look at the destination where you're going. You're just concentrating on putting one foot in front of the other to keep from tipping over. And and right now, they're keeping their heads down. They're talking about subpoenaing, seeing these uh, James Comey memos of his meetings with Donald Trump uh, during his his tenure as FBI chief. Uh, And then going from there, seeing if they're actually the and New York Times reports are valid or not. Democrats, on the other hand, they're calling for an independent investigation. They want a congressional commission set up to look into this and maybe even an independent counsel in the Justice Department to take over the inquiry. Yeah, at the very least, though, I mean, it does look as if we're approaching a bit of a crunch, because if uh, these memos are subpoenaed or if Mr. Comey does turn up and testify at, at one of these committees. I mean, the White House has flat denied that the president asked him, as this memo suggests, uh, to to go easy on Mr. Flynn. Right, exactly. And we're going to get to a, a he said, he said sort of situation where it's Comey's word against Donald Trump's. The thing is that James Comey, uh, he rose to the top of a big bureaucracy, the FBI. He has been able to, he's learned how to cover his backside. He knows what he has to do. And he's put together a paper trail, a contemporaneous paper trail of these meetings. So he's going to be able to bring that to the table as well, saying, not only is it my word, but here is what I wrote the day of detailing these uh, these meetings. Uh, what does the Trump administration have to back up his side of the story? And then the real wild card is James Comey eventually is going to be called to testify before Congress. And that is going to be high drama. He will sit there, he will take the oath, and he will explain how possibly Donald Trump pressured him to back off of the Flynn investigation. I mean, the spotlights are going to be on. And in the past, Comey has risen to the occasion. So I think a lot of people are going to be watching. That could be a very bad day for the Trump administration. Well, um, before the saliva courses down your chin, um, Anthony, tell me about uh, the news on Reuters that um, we've been told that uh, President Trump has got a a shortlist for the next director of the FBI. Yeah, he's already interviewed a few people, but we had a few more names added in that we hadn't heard before. One is Frank Keating. He's a former FBI agent, former governor of Oklahoma, kind of been out of out of politics and political scene for a while. He was on the Board of Regents for the University of Oklahoma. Another interesting one is Joe Lieberman. He was... Uh, 
Al Gore's vice presidential nominee when Al Gore was the Democratic nominee in 2000. Uh, he ended up uh, getting unseated in a Democratic primary senator, running as an independent, being an independent senator for a while. And then now he's kind of been working uh, in semi, uh, semi-removal from the political scene. He's with a law firm. He's been on some boards and, and things like that. And then there are a couple of FBI agents, including the current acting director, Andrew McCabe, who was the deputy director under Comey. So uh, I think the Trump administration wants to get a decision quickly so they can move on from this and have attention be on confirmation. They want to pick someone who's going to get you know, widespread support. These names we'll have to see. I know a lot of people don't want to see a politician in it. Anthony Zerka talking to me from Washington, D.C., and I gave you that uh, plaintive little moan about how uh, no uh, member of Congress from the Republican Party wanted to talk to us or was able to talk to us. Apparently one can and will be joining us before the end of the programme. Hurrah. And uh, also coming up on the programme, a general strike engulfs Greece, uh, protesting against proposals for further austerity. Having survived seven years of this incredibly deep crisis and still standing up, we owe it to ourselves. We have to find a consensus. We have to cooperate so that we find the necessary solutions for the growth of the economy and the return of the Greek society back to normality. But how far away is normality? Uh, We'll be heading to Athens in just over 10 minutes. Our headlines from the BBC newsroom, as we've been hearing, the most senior Republican in the US Congress, Paul Ryan, has warned against rushing to judgment against President Trump as scandal, or at least a sense of it, engulfs his administration. You're with the BBC World Service and live from London, this is NewsHour with me, Tim Franks. Iran may be some way from what most consider to be a democracy, but the presidential election on Friday is being fiercely fought. Today, the country's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, denounced some of the campaign rhetoric as unworthy. There's a clear choice on offer between the incumbent pragmatist president, Hassan Rouhani, and a more hard-line cleric, Ebrahim Raisi. The BBC's Richard Galpin looks ahead to Friday's vote. At a sports stadium in the Iranian capital, Tehran, thousands of supporters cheer as the man thought to be the favourite to win Friday's election appears on the stage. He is Hassan Rouhani, the current president a moderate who, after four years in power, is increasingly viewed as having shifted further to the left as a reformist. We must think about people's progress, he tells the crowd, and hope for Iran, and not deceive the Iranian people. Mr Rouhani's most significant achievement as president was the agreement with the international community to curb his country's nuclear programme in return for a lifting of crippling economic sanctions. Out on the streets of Tehran, a motorbike mechanic, Masoud Fala, will be voting for him. I hope that Rouhani wins because he has proved himself quite experienced in politics and things have improved over the past few years. But ironically, it's the nuclear deal which has left many other voters disillusioned with President Rouhani, 
because they feel it's not led to the transformation of the economy that they'd hoped for, as this journalist, Mustafa Dadka, makes clear. Mr Rouhani is one of the weakest politicians I've seen in recent times. From the merchant's point of view, when you look at the economy over the past four years, nothing has moved forward. It feels dead. At another rally in the capital, voters applaud Mr Rouhani's key opponent in this election, the hardline cleric Ebrahim Raisi, who in the 1980s was one of the judges behind the executions of thousands of opponents of the revolution. He castigates the Rouhani government for what he says has been four years of poor performance and he's been promising to tackle the high level of unemployment and triple cash handouts for the poor. As a result, Sanam Vakil, an Iran specialist at the think tank Chatham House in London, believes the election is now very tight. Right now, I believe it could go either way. Obviously, it could also go into a second round. This election is really going to be about voter turnout. And both sides are doing just about everything they can in order to ensure that their constituencies come out in support of the vote. Mr. Raisi and Mr. Rouhani present two very different visions for Iran's future, particularly in its relations with the West. Either a reform agenda involving further international cooperation or a more inward-looking approach, suspicious of the West's motives. Richard Galvin reporting on Iran's elections coming up on Friday. Could we be looking at a whole new era of medical possibility? Research published in the journal Nature Communication says that previously infertile mice have been given have given birth to healthy pups after being implanted with synthetic ovaries made by a 3D printer. Dr Monica LaRonda is assistant professor at Lurie Children's Hospital at Northwestern University in the US and co-authored the study. What we did was we were able to restore ovarian function in sterilized mice. So what we did was we removed the ovaries of these mice and we transplanted what we're calling a bioprosthetic ovary, which is a combination of ovarian follicles. It has the centralized potential egg cell surrounded by steroidogenic support cells. And this is all within a 3D printed scaffold. Together, we put this transplant in sterilized mice. We then mated these mice and they were able to produce live, healthy pups. When you say a 3D printed scaffold, what do you mean? I mean that we used a gelatin-like ink and we very precisely created a support system for the spherical ovarian follicle units. Was this successful in all the mice that you were experimenting on or was it a sort of slightly, I'm sure there's a more precise technical term for this, but was it slightly more hit and miss? I wouldn't say it was hit and miss, but I would say that it worked in three out of the seven that we tried, though this was just a very short-term study, and we only used a very small portion of the number of follicles that would naturally exist in a natural ovary. So I'm sure that just with those two adjustments, we would be able to get closer to 100% success. Right. Clearly, this has potentially very big implications. What's the next step? I agree. There's a lot of next steps before we can actually make a bioprosthetic ovary for humans. The next steps would include creating a 3D printed scaffold that would be clinically safe. We're able to do that because 
the gelatin that we did use is already FDA approved for several clinical uses. So we think that that translation should be an easy hurdle. We need to make sure that this architecture and, and what we've actually 3D printed will work with human follicles that have been isolated from human ovaries. And the next steps for my lab at Lurie Children's is we're doing this in a larger animal model, something that more closely mimics human anatomy and physiology. Just to be clear, though, the 3D printing is the sort of support mechanism for the existing biological tissue. So we're not looking at a future, at least through this technique, where other organs might be printed using a 3D printer and using synthetic material? I think that the 3D printed scaffold that we've developed here would be useful for other spherical tissue units. For example, the pancreas has islet cells that are in the spherical shape. So I think that we could use it for those other downstream potential uses in other tissues that don't require stacking of cells in a sheet-like way. So this could have application beyond the reconstruction of ovaries? I think so. This is the first that we're aware of a soft tissue organ that's been regenerated in this way. And so I think just the mechanisms that we've used to kind of assess how our tissue functions, that we're able to restore both fertility and hormone levels in ovary in this case, could be useful just the way in that we've done it. So prior to this publication, we tried many, many different architectures with this 3D printing, and we were able to kind of come up with designs on the fly that might work better in culture before we actually did this transplant. So I think using the same type of methodology might be useful for other researchers who are interested in other organ regeneration. Monica LaRonda, Assistant Professor at Northwestern University in Illinois. And uh, coming up a little bit later on the programme, we'll hear from supporters of President Trump about what they make of the allegations of obstruction of justice. I don't think people really care about it. Now, obviously, we care whether or not he's colluding with Russians and trying to affect the election and those kind of substantive matters. And if if real hard evidence comes out about that, then obviously we'll have to reassess. But in terms of Trump, Trump's doing exactly what he's done for the last year, and people love him for that. He confronts the press. I did uh, also tell you that we'd uh, also hear from a Republican congressman. I've um, just been told that for the second time today, uh, a congressman has, a Republican congressman has decided uh, not to join us after all. Um, If you uh, listen very closely, the other side of the uh, studio glass, you can hear a producer repeatedly hitting his head against a wall. Such is live broadcasting. Thank you for downloading this podcast edition of NewsHour. And uh, if you're enjoying this, then uh, you could maybe try looking at one of the other podcasts from the BBC World Service. The Inquiry tackles one topical question each week with four expert witnesses. Next on NewsHour, we'll hear about the release of uh, the former American soldier Chelsea Manning. First, our daily look at business news. And today there has been a general strike in Greece. Hospitals, transport services and government offices have been severely affected. The industrial action came on the eve of a debate in Parliament over controversial reforms put forward by the left-wing Syriza government, which would further cut pensions and end tax breaks. 
The government says it has no choice as it needs to make more savings before Eurozone finance ministers will agree to hand over further loan money to service Greece's vast debt. Konstantin Michalos is president of the Union of Greek Chambers of Commerce and Industry. What does he feel about those who are striking? Although we do have sympathy, what is of paramount importance is that this review is completed. It was um, the preference of all political parties uh, until a couple of months ago that the government should have closed. Admittedly, there are reforms that uh, are deep, uh, reforms that are hitting certain social classes, predominantly the middle class. Um, If one looks at the uh, horrendous property taxes that have been implemented since uh, 2013 onwards, we definitely need to change this mixture of economic policy as soon as possible so that we can return back to growth. Yeah, but it's it's not going to happen, is it? I mean, you're working under such stringent conditions in order to get the cash that you need from Eurozone finance ministers in order to service your enormous debt that the government has got absolutely no option but to continue this punishing austerity. Well, I disagree. The debt is an issue that will be resolved hopefully in the next uh, few weeks through the IMF, uh, the sustainability of the debt. So that will in itself create a different climate as far as handling the debt situation. But just on that, I mean, really, is there going to be a significant change to your debt burden, given that we're in election year in in Germany? I mean, it it would be utterly toxic for there to be some sort of write-down or haircut. Well, it's not a question of a write-down, and we're not looking for a haircut. What we need is a prolongation as far as the time is concerned, and I think that even today's German government will concede to that. If we all agree that the debt is sustainable, the question is over what period of time. Now, that won't bring an immediate benefit to the average Greek citizen. Absolutely not. But the fact that there will be further stability within the Greek economy, that, of course, will make Greece more attractive to both local and, of course, more importantly, foreign investment. Having survived seven years of this incredibly deep crisis and still standing up, we owe it to ourselves. We have to find a consensus. We have to cooperate so that we find the necessary solutions for the growth of the economy and the return of the Greek society back to normality. That was Konstantin Michalos, president of the Union of Greek Chambers of Commerce and Industry, speaking to me from Athens. You're listening to the BBC World Service and live from London, this is NewsHour with me, Tim Franks. Chelsea Manning posted a photo of herself on social media today, her feet anyway, taking, as she put it, her first steps of freedom. She left military prison in the US in the early hours of the morning, 28 years before her original sentence was due to finish. As a low-level intelligence analyst in the American Army, Private Bradley Manning, as he was then before he announced he wanted to live as a woman called Chelsea, was posted to Iraq. There, Manning copied hundreds of thousands of secret military and diplomatic files and passed them to the organisation WikiLeaks. In 2013, she was sentenced to 35 years in jail. At the start of this year, President Obama commuted her sentence. Today, she left prison. Ed Pilkington is the Guardian newspaper's chief reporter in the United States 
and was one of the journalists involved in processing the information Manning leaked. Chelsea Manning, who was an army private, a fairly lowly soldier within the US Army based in Iraq, she decided to transmit a huge stash of state secrets, US state secrets that she downloaded from intelligence databases she was working on. And, you know, initially we found out through her trial, she tried to contact traditional outlets, the New York Times, Washington Post and Politico. She approached all three, but she couldn't get through to the right person. So in the end, she she spotted news reports of this new outlet called WikiLeaks, which at that time, this is 2010, you have to cast your mind back seven years pretty much no one had heard of. And she read somewhere that WikiLeaks had set up a a portal into which leakers could just download anything they wanted and WikiLeaks would pick it up and publish it. And so Chelsea Manning began uploading a vast amount. It was something in the end, it was something like 700,000 files of US state secrets, which ended up becoming a complete global sensation. And why was that? I mean, clearly, it was partly to do with the the size of the leak. But were there particular revelations that caused particular eruptions? This was, after all, the product of the digital age. Never before could such vast amounts of data be published so easily and shared around the world instantaneously. And then in terms of the actual content, It did contain several aspects, which I think were globally important and significant. Firstly, she transmitted to WikiLeaks the war logs, the sort of sheer data that the U.S. Army was keeping on its operations in Afghanistan and Iraq at a level of detail that we'd never really seen before. And then the more sensational aspect of it was the publishing of 250,000 U.S. embassy cables. Now, these were sort of daily reports that were being sent back from U.S. embassies around the world, back to base at the U.S. State Department. It was the most embarrassing aspect of it for the then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and the U.S. government, because it revealed sort of quite gossipy information about what U.S. ambassadors were picking up and what they were thinking. And it had quite important ramifications for the Arab Spring because it revealed widespread corruption at regime level among the leadership in several Middle Eastern countries and North African countries and became a sort of source material for popular unrest. You will be aware there will be plenty of people who will argue that such an undiluted data dump also threatened US national interests. How far is that a a justified concern? Analysts and politicians will have their own take on what is in the public interest and what isn't. But it is a valid criticism, I think, to say that Manning leaked indiscriminately without thinking very closely about what was legitimate in the public domain and what isn't. But against that, I think you have to take a body of understanding, both academic and otherwise, that says that the US government, like many governments around the world, is overclassifying huge amounts of its information. It's the public's role to prove that information should be available to it. But equally, there's an argument that one of the products of Chelsea Manning and the WikiLeaks was to see the Obama administration begin a a far more aggressive pursuit of surveillance, of indiscriminate scooping up of data, and that that has had a baleful effect as far as those people who urge for there to be greater privacy and greater transparency. Yes, I think it's one of the paradoxes of the Chelsea Manning story that Obama launched greater number of prosecutions of official leakers under the Espionage Act of 1917 than had ever been launched by US presidents combined before him. And 
in a way that ended up with this extraordinary sentence of 35 years, which was hugely greater than any previous leaker before Manning. Ed Pilkington from The Guardian newspaper. Chelsea Manning herself isn't giving interviews at the moment, indeed is staying at an undisclosed location. But one of her friends is Evan Greer, who's campaign director for an organisation called Fight for the Future, which describes itself as a digital rights non-profit group. I've spoken to her recently, and what I can say is that she's just so grateful for all of the love and support that's pouring out all over the world. And she feels that it was that organizing and people coming together that led to this unprecedented day. Chelsea Manning's release is a victory for human rights and the future of freedom of expression. Persecution of her by the U.S. government will go down in history as one of the darker moments of the last decade. Well, you say a a darker moment. I mean, there are plenty of people who say that while it was sort of perhaps interesting, perhaps useful to get some of the information that was leaked. She also acted in a way that undermined US national security and did so while she was serving in the US military. Chelsea took an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States, and that's exactly what she did. There's absolutely no evidence that shows that any of the crimes that she exposed or any of the documents that she revealed led to any serious harm or loss of life. Even the U.S. military agrees with that. Rather, uh, she actually helped us understand better what our government is doing in our name. Tell me a little bit about what the last seven years has been like for her. Chelsea has been held in conditions that the United Nations considers to be torture. She's been systematically denied access to the medically recommended health care that she needs related to her gender transition. She was held in an all-male military facility. Uh, So she's been through an incredible amount and paid a, a serious price for the act of speaking truth. How far is she still under threat of further court action or legal action? So right now, Chelsea has an appeal coming up. Really, this is about trying to get this conviction removed from her record. Many people believe that the prosecution uh, and persecution of her was invalid, uh, that she clearly acted in the public interest or intended to do so. In terms of any further legal action from the, the U.S. government, I'm not aware of anything that they can do. And if they do intend to harass or target her in any way, I can say that myself, my organization, Fight for the Future, and all of Chelsea's supporters will be there to fight for her. You know, I think the most important thing now is just that she has the support that she needs to to decide what she does next. She entered the military at a very young age. She's been incarcerated for the past seven years. This is really the first time in her adult life that she gets to choose what she does. What do you say to those people who, who say that one of the perhaps unintended effects of Chelsea Manning's action was actually to see the government go much harder and much more aggressively against leakers. Blaming Chelsea Manning for the Obama administration's war on whistleblowers is a bit like blaming the child of someone in a low-income community for the drug war. The Obama administration made a conscious decision to target whistleblowers, to expand mass government surveillance, and to persecute Chelsea Manning the way that they did. It was a grassroots movement fighting for Chelsea Manning that uh, was able to get her free, and that I think is helping set a precedent that will hopefully embolden other people to speak out when they see corruption or crimes committed by our government in our name. Evan Greer, a friend of Chelsea Manning. The Red Cross says it's found 115 bodies following fighting in the Central African Republic in the town of Bangasu. The total is much higher than a figure previously given by the United Nations.
the head of the Red Cross in the Central African Republic, Antoine Mbao Mbongo, told the BBC that the situation in the country is dire. The city of Bangasu has been caught in hostilities, fights and killings that have lasted for several days. At the moment, the situation is alarming because we're lacking everything, beginning with medicine and food. There have been a lot of deaths and people injured. James Copnall is the BBC's Africa editor. What lies behind this latest violence? Well, this is one of the slightly more mystifying episodes of violence in the Central African Republic in the sense that it was initially presented as an attack by an anti-Balaka militia. That's the largely Christian group or several groups that sprung up to fight against the Selika, the largely Muslim rebels who took control of the country during the Civil War a couple of years ago. And certainly there seemed a lot of evidence to support that. This group at the weekend of armed men attacked both the UN base in the town of Bangasu, but also a largely Muslim neighbourhood. And people then fled to the mosque, uh, also to the church as well, the church saying it took in Muslims who were fleeing. So the United Nations mission was saying they believed it was one of these anti-Balaka, largely Christian groups. Since then, things have become a little less clear because local reports from the Central African Republic have suggested that the usual command chains for the anti-Balakas simply didn't recognise these armed men, that it may be an armed group operating outside of previously known structures, which highlights perhaps the increased complexities of the security situation in the Central African Republic. But it does seem that the fact that a Muslim area was attacked hints at some of the interreligious tensions that still bedevil the country. Well, I guess the fact that the UN got the casualty figure wrong is one thing, but I guess a bigger point is that the UN has a, or well, supposed to have a big peacekeeping operation in the Central African Republic. It's not working. It's not. And I think peacekeeping is a difficult job at the best of times. What I think the mission in the Central African Republic is having to do is peacemaking, essentially, in that you have these armed groups in different parts of the country. There is little control of the state, certainly not of the state's military beyond the capital city, Bongi. And that means that increasingly the United Nations peacekeepers there are having to be more active. And so an attempt to wrest back the control of Bangasu, for example, we're told there are airstrikes taking place and UN military special units have been sent in and so on. So I think they would say they're working pretty hard. I suspect they don't have enough manpower for what is a pretty big country. That's always the case with peacekeeping missions throughout the world. And a note on the figures, the casualty figures, The Red Cross are saying 115, and it's possible that total could go up as well. Other sources in the town haven't been quite so definite, and it may not simply be a case of the UN getting it wrong, more that figures evolve or it's very difficult to make counts so early on. But what is clear is that there is a big security problem in Bongasu and in the nearby area because five UN peacekeepers were killed a few days previously to that in the area. But not just there. There was an incident in Alindao elsewhere, a few hundred kilometres away in the Central African Republic recently, where also there are reports of maybe up to 100 deaths. And the UN also has been talking about, just this week, more than 120 civilians killed over the last few weeks, not including these major incidents in Bongasu and in Allendale as well. So there's clearly a lot of fighting going on in the Central African Republic, and equally clearly it's civilians who seem to be bearing the brunt of an awful lot of that.
The BBC's Africa editor, Africa editor James Copnall on violence in the Central African Republic. Our top story this hour has been that the most senior Republican in the US Congress, Paul Ryan, has warned against rushing to judgment against President Trump as uh, the turmoil continues to engulf his administration. A chief White House ethics lawyer from the George W. Bush administration, Richard Painter, told this programme, though, that the problem was not what the president did in firing the former FBI director, but why, in his opinion, he did it. The president has the power to fire the FBI director, but there's such a thing as abuse of power. And if the power to tell the FBI director what to do is used to interfere with a criminal investigation, that is obstruction of justice. This is the BBC World Service, and live from London, you're listening to NewsHour. We heard about Iran's key election on Friday. There's another vote just after, in fact, this coming Tuesday, uh, which could also have a big impact on people around the world. That is when member states will choose the new Director General of the World Health Organization in Geneva. The UN agency's mission is to make everyone on the planet as healthy as can be. But the WHO came in for severe criticism over its handling of the Ebola outbreak in 2014. The BBC's global health correspondent, Tulip Mazumda, has been examining the agency and speaking to the three candidates competing to become the world's top medical officer. It describes itself as the global guardian of public health. But what do people actually know about the World Health Organisation? Have you heard of the World Health Organisation? I'm quite oblivious to it, to be fair. Something of health. They try to make people and companies give money to get a better health for the world. Looking after the world's health as best as possible and ensuring that the world is as healthy as it could be. That last answer pretty much covers it. The World Health Organization has 194 member states and they all sign up to the agency's goal of ensuring the highest attainable health for all people. Leading such a massive organisation which relies mostly on donations from countries and organisations such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is an epic task. Whoever gets the top job will have to be the consummate politician, getting countries on board with big, sometimes expensive global health objectives, whilst also being above all the politics, not beholden to any special interests of any particular country. But these three candidates think they've got what it takes. My name is uh, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus and from Ethiopia. Hello, my name is Dr. Sania Nishtar from Pakistan. I am David Navarro. I was born in the UK. Dr. Tedros is a former foreign affairs and health minister in Ethiopia. He lost his brother to disease when he was seven years old. He told me access to affordable health care for everyone would be his key priority. No one should be left behind. They should not be left behind because they're poor. They should not be left behind because they belong to some religion. We complain about access to drugs or we complain about emergencies, epidemics, 
worried that it may come to our country. If we ensure universal health coverage, we can address all these issues. Dr Nishtar, meanwhile, trained as a cardiologist and later set up Heartfelt, an organisation aimed at improving health systems in Pakistan. My vision centres on reclaiming WHO's primacy and ensuring that it has the world's trust as its lead health agency. In terms of its mandate, I would like it to focus on its core roles rather than doing everything under the sun in a half-baked way. Especially since the Ebola crisis, it has come under heavy criticism for its inability to play one of its most important roles, which is to exercise stewardship during health emergencies. And lastly, Dr David Nabarro. He's had a number of big UN jobs. He's currently the Special Advisor on the Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. My first priority is to focus on universal health coverage, everybody being able to access health care when and where they need it. For WHO right now, the most immediate challenge is to get confidence and trust and to make sure that the organisation responds in a fair way to the needs of everybody, but particularly putting the interests of those who are most disadvantaged right up to the top. Voting gets underway in Geneva on Tuesday. The World Health Organisation is at a crossroads, and the new Director-General could make or break the self-proclaimed global guardian of our health. Tulip Mazumda reporting on the forthcoming elections uh, for the WHO Director-General. Let's return to our main news story. The turmoil in Washington, D.C. is accusation and counter-accusation ricochet over whether the president interfered with the FBI's investigations of possible links with Russia. Well, Washington, D.C. may be in a state of near-nervous collapse, but what about the vast swathes of the country which are perhaps not so obsessed with politics? Nada Torfik reports from the home of country music, Nashville, Tennessee. In Nashville, it's the twang of a guitar that moves this music city. Unlike Washington, politics isn't the first topic you hear when you step into the bars. In this capital of country music, the tunes instead talk about the concerns of everyday Americans, paying rent, finding love. And for those who voted for Donald Trump, they have brushed off this image of a White House in crisis. They view the headlines as simply noise. Mark Skoda is one of the key people who were really early on a Trump supporter. He held several rallies for Mr. Trump. And here's what he makes of all the headlines. I believe that the deep state, I believe that there is a fourth branch of government. It is the bureaucracy. And they actually don't like the fact that Trump's in the power position right now. You cannot tell me that all these leaks and all these kinds of comments to the press that come through almost daily, almost hourly, are not because people are trying to subvert this president. Mark says that he is angered by the continual talks of impeachments. He said that this is just an administration going through growing pains and the president should be given a chance. He's even accused Democrats in Washington of using this as a tactic to keep up pressure on the president and hurt his agenda. Now, the near daily revelations, including how the president has possibly interfered with the investigation into his associates ties to Russia, are not raising red flags with other voters as well. Ben Cunningham tells me that the Russia allegations are a dry well, that they keep digging and coming up with nothing. He's not convinced that there is any 
any Malfians there. What he told me is that people still love Donald Trump. I don't think people really care about it. Now, obviously, we care whether or not he's colluding with Russians and trying to affect the election and those kind of substantive matters. And if, if real hard evidence comes out about that, then obviously we'll have to reassess. But in terms of Trump, Trump's doing exactly what he's done for the last year, and people love him for that. He confronts the press. Well, and if you go over and speak to Phil Valentine, he hosts a conservative talk radio show. And every day he hears from callers who listen to him specifically because they trust him over the mainstream media. And he says the only thing that Donald Trump needs to worry about is delivering on his campaign promises. I don't think anybody's concerned about a chaos. They're concerned about results. If Trump doesn't build the wall, if Trump doesn't stop illegal immigration, which were the main things he got elected on, if he doesn't cut taxes, if he doesn't lower the corporate rate, if he doesn't do the things that he said he was going to do during the campaign, then there's going to be trouble. But the chaos inside the White House, the palace intrigue, nobody really cares about that. Well, maybe not in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, but they do in plenty of other places. Uh, That was Phil Valentine um, ending that report by Nada Torfik. Always good to hear from outside uh, the broiling pot that is the nation's capital. And that's it from NewsHour. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.